Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan by Robert E. Howard. Episode 16. The People of the Black Circle. Part 2 of 2. Chapter 6. Where now, Yasmina was trying to sit erect on the rocking saddle bow, clutching her captor. She was conscious of a recognition of shame, that she should not find unpleasant the feel of his muscular flesh under her fingers. To Afghanistan, he answered. It's a perilous road, but the stallion will carry us easily, unless we fall in with some of your friends or my tribal enemies. Now that Yarafsal is dead, those damned wazalis will be on our heels. I'm surprised we haven't sighted them behind us already. Who was that man you rode down? she asked. I don't know. I never saw him before. He's no ghoulie, that's certain. What the devil he was doing there is more than I can say. There was a girl with him, too. Yes, her gaze was shadowed. I cannot understand that. That girl was my maid, Gitara. Do you suppose she was coming to aid me? That the man was a friend? If so, the Wazulis have captured them both. Well, he answered, there's nothing we can do. If we go back, they'll skin us both. I can't understand how a girl like that could get this far into the mountains with only one man. And he, a robed scholar, for that's what he looked like. There's something infernally queer in all this. That fellow Yar Afsal beat and sent away. He moved like a man walking in his sleep. I've seen the priests of Zamora perform their abominable rituals in their forbidden temples, and their victims had a stare like that man. The priest looked into their eyes and muttered incantations, and then the people became the walking dead men, with glassy eyes, doing as they were ordered. And then I saw what the fellow had in his hand, which Yar Afzal picked up. It was like a big black jade bead, such as the temple girls of Yezud wear when they dance before the black stone spider, which is their god. Yar Afzal held it in his hand, and he didn't pick up anything else. Yet when he fell dead, a spider, like the god at Yezud, only smaller, ran out of his fingers. And then, when the Wajudi stood uncertain there, a voice cried out for them to kill me, and I know that voice didn't come from any of the warriors, nor from the women who watched by the huts. It seemed to come from above. Yasmina did not reply. She glanced at the stark outlines of the mountains, all about them and shuddered. Her soul shrank from their gaunt brutality. This was a grim, naked land where anything might happen. Age-old traditions invested it with shuddery horror for anyone born in the hot, luxuriant southern plains. The sun was high, beating down with fierce heat, yet the wind that blew in fitful gusts seemed to sweep off slopes of ice. Once she heard a strange rushing above them that was not the sweep of the wind and from the way Conan looked up, she knew it was not a common sound to him either. She thought that a strip of the cold blue sky was momentarily blurred, as if some all but invisible object had swept between it and herself, but she could not be sure. Neither made any comment, but Conan loosened his knife in his scabbard. They were following a faintly marked path, dipping down into ravines. So deep the sun never struck bottom, laboring up steep slopes where loose shale threatened to slide from beneath their feet, and following knife-edge ridges with blue haze echoing depths on either hand. The sun had passed its zenith when they crossed a narrow trail winding among the crags. 
Conan reined the horse aside and followed it southward, going almost at right angles to their former course. A Galzai village is at one end of this trail, he explained. Their women follow it to a well for water. You need new garments. Glancing down at her filmy attire, Yasmina agreed with him. A cloth of gold slippers were in tatters, her robes and silken undergarments torn to shreds that scarcely held together decently. Garments meant for the streets of Peshkauri were scarcely appropriate for the crags of the Hymelians. Coming to a crook in the trail, Conan dismounted, helped Yasmina down and waited. Presently he nodded, though she heard nothing. A woman coming along the trail, he remarked. In sudden panic, she clutched his arm. You will not, not kill her. I don't kill women ordinarily, he grunted. For some of the hill women are she wolves. No, he grinned as at a huge jest. By Kram, I'll pay for her clothes. How is that? He displayed a large handful of gold coins and replaced all but the largest. She nodded much relieved. It was perhaps natural for men to slay and die. Her flesh crawled at the thought of watching the butchery of a woman. Presently, a woman appeared around the crook of the trail. A tall, slim Galli girl, straight as a young sapling, bearing a great empty gourd. She stopped short, but the gourd fell from her hands when she saw them. She wavered as though to run, then realized that Conan was too close to her to allow her to escape, and so stood still, staring at them with a mixed expression of fear and curiosity. Conan displayed the gold coin. If you will give this woman your garments, he said, I will give you this money. A response was instant. The girl smiled broadly with surprise and delight, and, with the disdain of a hillwoman for prudish conventions, promptly yanked off her sleeveless embroidered vest, slipped down her wide trousers and stepped out of them, twitched off her wide-sleeved shirt, and kicked off her sandals. Bundling them all in a bunch, she proffered them to Conan, who handed them to the astonished Devi. Get behind that rock and put these on, he directed, further proving himself no native hillman. Fold your robes up into a bundle and bring them to me when you come out. The money, clamored the hill girl, stretching out her hands eagerly. The gold you promised me. Conan flipped the coin to her. She caught it, bit, then thrust it into her hair, bent and caught up the gourd and went on down the path, as devoid of self-consciousness as of garments. Conan waited with some impatience, while the Devi, for the first time in her pampered life, dressed herself. When she stepped from behind the rock, he swore in surprise, and she felt a curious rush of emotions at the unrestrained admiration burning in his fierce blue eyes. She felt shame, embarrassment, yet a stimulation of vanity she had never before experienced, and a tingling when meeting the impact of his eyes. He laid a heavy hand on her shoulder and turned her about, staring avidly at her from all angles. By cram, said he. In those smoky, mystic robes you were aloof and cold and far off as a star. Now you are a woman of warm flesh and blood. You went behind that rock as the Devi of Vendia. You come out as a hill girl, though a thousand times more beautiful than any wench of the Zaibar. You were a goddess. Now you are real. He spanked her resoundingly, and she, recognizing this as merely another expression of admiration, did not feel outraged. It was indeed as if the changing of her garments had wrought a change in her personality. The feelings and sensations she had suppressed rose to domination in her now, as if the queenly robes she had cast off had been material shackles and inhibitions. But Conan, 
in his renewed admiration, did not forget that peril lurked all about them. The farther they drew away from the region of the Zaibar, the less likely he was to encounter any Kshatriya troops. On the other hand, he had been listening all throughout their flight for sounds that would tell him the vengeful Wazuris of Kurum were on their heels. Swinging the Devi up, he followed her into the saddle, and again reined the stallion westward. The bundle of garments she had given him, he hurled over a cliff to fall into the depths of a thousand-foot gorge. Why did you do that? she asked. Why did you not give them to the girl? The riders from Peshkari are combing these hills, he said. They'll be ambushed and harried at every turn, and by way of reprisal they'll destroy every village they can take. They may turn westward any time. If they found a girl wearing your garments, they'd torture her into talking, and she might put them on my trail. What will she do? asked Yasmina. Go back to her village and tell her people that a stranger attacked her, he answered. She'll have them on our track, all right, but she had to go on and get the water first. If she dared go back without it, they'd whip the skin off her. That gives us a long start. They'll never catch us, but Nadfall will cross the Afku border. There are no paths or signs of human habitation in these parts, she commented. Even for the Himalians, this region seems singularly deserted. We have not seen a trail since we left the one where we met the Galzaya woman. For answer, he pointed to the northwest, where she glimpsed a peak in a notch of the crags. Imsha, grunted Conan. The tribes build their villages as far from the mountain as they can. She was instantly rigid with attention. Imsha, she whispered, the mountain of the Black Seers. So they say, he answered. This is as near as I ever approached it. I have swung north to avoid any Kshatriya troops that might be prowling through the hills. The regular trail from Horam to Afulistan lies farther south. This is an ancient one, and seldom used. She was staring intently at the distant peak. Her nails bit into her pink palms. How long would it take to reach Imshar from this point? All the rest of the day and all night, he answered and grinned. Do you want to go there? By Krom, it's no place for an ordinary human, from what the hill people say. Why do they not gather and destroy the devils that inhabit it? She demanded. Wipe out wizards with swords? Anyway, they never interfere with people unless the people interfere with them. I never saw one of them, though I've talked with men who swore they had. They say they've glimpsed people from the tower among the crags at sunset or sunrise. Tall, silent men in black robes. Would you be afraid to attack them? I. The idea seemed a new one to him. Why, if they imposed upon me, it would be my life or theirs. But I have nothing to do with them. I came to these mountains to raise a following of human beings, not to war with wizards. Yasmina did not at once reply. She stared at the peak, as at a human enemy, feeling all her anger and hatred stir in her bosom anew. And another feeling began to take dim shape, she had plotted to hurl against the masters of Yimsha, the man in whose arms she was now carried. Perhaps there was another way, besides the method she had planned, to accomplish her purpose. She could not mistake the look that was beginning to dawn in this wild man's eyes as they rested on her. Kingdoms have fallen when a woman's slim white hands pulled the strings of destiny. Suddenly she stiffened, pointing. Look, look! Just visible on the distant peak, there hung a cloud of peculiar aspect. It was a frosty crimson in color, veined with sparkling gold. This cloud was in motion. It rotated, and as it whirled, it contracted. It dwindled to a spinning taper that flashed in the sun. And suddenly, it detached itself from the snow-tipped peak, 
floated out over the void like a gay-hued feather and became invisible against the cerulean sky. What could that have been? asked the girl uneasily, as a shoulder of rock shut the distant mountain from view. The phenomenon had been disturbing, even in its beauty. The hillmen call it Yimsha's carpet, whatever that means, answered Conan. I've seen five hundred of them, running as if the devil were at their heels, to hide themselves in caves and crags, because they saw that crimson cloud float up from the peak. What in? They had advanced through a narrow, knife-cut gash between turreted walls, and emerged upon a broad ledge, flanked by a series of rugged slopes on one hand, and a gigantic precipice on the other. The dim trail followed this ledge, bent around a shoulder and reappeared at intervals far below, working a tedious way downward, and emerging from the cut that opened upon the ledge, the black stallion halted short, snorting. Conan urged him on impatiently, and the horse snorted and threw his head up and down, quivering and straining as if against an invisible barrier. Conan swore and swung off, lifting Yasmina down with him. He went forward with a hand thrown out before him, as if expecting to encounter unseen resistance, but there was nothing to hinder him, though when he tried to lead the horse, it neighed shrilly and jerked back. Then Yasmina cried out, and Conan wheeled, hand starting to knife hilt. Neither of them had seen him come, but he stood there with his arms folded, a man in a camel-hair robe and a green turban. Conan grunted with surprise to recognize the man the stallion had spurned in the ravine outside the Wazuli village. Who the devil are you? he demanded. The man did not answer. Conan noticed that his eyes were wide, fixed, and of a peculiar luminous quality, and those eyes held his like a magnet. Kemsa's sorcery was based on hypnotism, as is the case with most Eastern magic. The way has been prepared for the hypnotist for untold centuries of generations who have lived and died in the firm conviction of the reality and power of hypnotism, building up, by mass thought and practice, a colossal though intangible atmosphere against which the individual, steeped in the traditions of the land, finds himself helpless. But Conan was not a son of the East. Its traditions were meaningless to him. He was the product of an utterly alien atmosphere. Hypnotism was not even a myth in Cimmeria. The heritage that prepared a native of the East for submission to the mesmist was not his. He was aware of what Kemsa was trying to do to him, but he felt the impact of the man's uncanny power only as a vague impulsion, a tugging and pulling that he could shake off as a man shakes spider webs from his garments. Aware of hostility and black magic, he ripped out his long knife and lunged, as quick on his feet as a mountain lion. But hypnotism was not all of Kemsa's magic. Yasmina, watching, did not see by what roguery of movement or illusion the man in the green turban avoided the terrible disemboweling thrust. But the keen blade wickered between side and lifted arm, and to Yasmina it seemed that Kemsa merely brushed his open palm lightly against Conan's bullneck but the Cimmerian went down like a slain ox. Yet Conan was not dead. Breaking his fall with his left hand, he slashed at Kemsa's legs, even as he went down, and the Raksha avoided the scythe-like swipe only by a most unwizardly bound backward. Then Yasmina cried out sharply as she saw a woman she recognized as Gitara glide out from among the rocks and come up to the man. The greeting died in the Devi's throat as she saw the malevolence in the girl's beautiful face. 
Conan was rising slowly, shaken and dazed by the cruel craft of that blow which, delivered with an art forgotten of men before Atlantis sank, would have broken like a rotten twig the neck of a lesser man. Kemza gazed at him cautiously, and a trifle uncertainly. The Raksha had learned the full flood of his own power when he faced at bay the knives of the maddened Wazulis in the ravine behind Kurum village, but the Sumerian's resistance had perhaps shaken his newfound confidence a trifle. Sorcery thrives on success, not on failure. He stepped forward, lifting his hand, then halted as if frozen, head tilted back, eyes wide open, hand raised. In spite of himself, Conan followed his gaze, and so did the women, the girl cowering by the trembling stallion, and the girl beside Kemsa. Down the mountain slopes, like a whirl of shining dust blown before the wind, a crimson conoid cloud came dancing. Kemsa's dark face turned ashen. His hand began to tremble, then sank to his side. The girl beside him, sensing the change in him, stared at him inquiringly. The crimson shape left the mountain slope and came down in a long, arching sweep. It struck the ledge between Conan and Kemsa, and the Raksha gave back with a stifled cry. He backed away, pushing the girl Gitara back with groping, fending hands. The crimson cloud balanced like a spinning top for an instant, whirling in a dazzling sheen on its point. Then, without warning, it was gone, vanished, as a bubble vanishes when burst. There on the ledge stood four men. It was miraculous, incredible, impossible, yet it was true. They were not ghosts or phantoms. They were four tall men, with shaven, vulture-like heads and black robes that hid their feet. Their hands were concealed by their wide sleeves. They stood in silence, their naked heads nodding slightly in unison. They were facing Kemsa, but behind them, Conan felt his own blood turning to ice in his veins. Rising, he backed stealthily away, until he could feel the stallion's shoulder trembling against his back, and the devi crept into the shelter of his arm. There was no word spoken. Silence hung like stifling pall. All four of the men in black robes stared at Kemsa. Their vulture-like faces were immobile, their eyes introspective and contemplative. But Kemsa shook like a man in an egg. His feet were braced on the rock, his calves straining as if in physical combat. Sweat ran in streams down his dark face, his right hand locked on something under his brown robe so desperately that the blood ebbed from that hand and left it white. His left hand fell on the shoulder of Gitara and clutched in agony like the grasp of a drowning man. She did not flinch or whimper, though his fingers dug like talons into her firm flesh. Conan had witnessed hundreds of battles in his wild life, but never one like this, wherein four diabolical wills sought to beat down one lesser but equally devilish will that opposed them. But he only faintly sensed the monstrous quality of that hideous struggle. With his back to the wall driven to bay by his former masters, Kemsa was fighting for his life with all the dark power, all the frightful knowledge they had taught him through long, grim years of neophytism and vassalage. He was stronger than even he had guessed, and the free exercise of his powers in his own behalf had tapped unsuspected reservoirs of forces, and he was nerved to super-energy by frantic fear and desperation. He reeled before the merciless impact of those hypnotic eyes, but he held his ground. His features were distorted into a bestial grin of agony, and his limbs were twisted as on a rack. It was a war of souls, of frightful brains, steeped in lore forbidden to men for a million years, 
of mentalities which had plumbed the abysses and explored the dark stars where spawned the shadows. Yasmina understood this better than did Conan, and she dimly understood why Kemsa could withstand the concentrated impact of those four hellish wills, which might have blasted into atoms the very rock on which he stood. The reason was the girl that he clutched with the strength of his despair. She was like an anchor to his staggering soul, battered by the waves of those psychic emanations. His weakness was now his strength. His love for the girl, violent and evil though it might be, was yet a tie that bound him to the rest of humanity, providing an earthly leverage for his will, a chain that his inhuman enemies could not break, at least not break through Kemsa. They realized that, before he did, and one of them turned his gaze from the Rakshar full upon Gitara. There was no battle there. The girl shrank and wilted like a leaf in the drought. Irresistibly impelled, she tore herself from her lover's arms before he realized what was happening. Then a hideous thing came to pass. She began to back toward the precipice, facing her tormentors, her eyes wide and blank, as dark gleaming glass from behind which a lamp has been blown out. Kemsa groaned and staggered toward her, falling into the trap set for him. A divided mind could not maintain the unequal battle. He was beaten, a straw in their hands. The girl went backward, walking like an automaton, and Kemsa reeled drunkenly after her, hands vainly outstretched, groaning, slobbering in his pain, his feet moving heavily like dead things. On the very brink she paused, standing stiffly, her heels on the edge, and he fell on his knees and crawled, whimpering toward her, groping for her, to drag her back from destruction. And just before his clumsy fingers touched her, one of the wizards laughed, like the sudden bronze note of a bell in hell. The girl reeled suddenly, and consummate climax of exquisite cruelty, reason and understanding flooded back into her eyes, which flared with awful fear. She screamed, clutched wildly at her lover's straining hand, and then, unable to save herself, fell headlong with a moaning cry. Kemsa hauled himself to the edge and stared over haggardly, his lips working as he mumbled to himself. Then he turned and stared for a long minute at his torturers, with wide eyes that held no human light. And then, with a cry that almost burst the rocks, he reeled up and came rushing toward them, a knife lifted in his hand. One of the Rakshas stepped forward and stamped his foot, and as he stamped, there came a rumbling that grew swiftly to a grinding roar, where his foot struck, a crevice opened in the solid rock that widened instantly. Then, with a deafening crash, a whole section of the ledge gave way. There was a last glimpse of Kemsa, with arms wildly upflung, and then he vanished amidst the roar of the avalanche that thundered down into the abyss. The four looked contemplatively at the ragged edge of rock that formed the new rim of the precipice, and then turned suddenly. Conan, thrown off his feet by the shudder of the mountain, was rising, lifting Yasmina. He seemed to move as slowly as his brain was working. He was befogged and stupid. He realized that there was a desperate need for him to lift the devi on the black stallion and ride like the wind, but an unaccountable sluggishness weighted his every thought and action. And now the wizards had turned toward him. They raised their arms, and to his horrified sight, he saw their outlines fading, dimming, becoming hazy and nebulous, as a crimson smoke billowed around their feet and rose about them. They were blotted out by a sudden whirling cloud, and then he realized that he too was enveloped in a blinding crimson mist. 
he heard Yasmina scream, and the stallion cried out like a woman in pain. The devi was torn from his arm, and as he lashed out with his knife blindly, a terrific blow like a gust of storm wind knocked him sprawling against the rock. Dazedly, he saw a crimson conoid cloud spinning up and over the mountain slopes. Yasmina was gone, and so were the four men in black. Only the terrified stallion shared the ledge with him. Chapter 7 as mists vanished before a strong wind, the cobwebs vanished from Conan's brain. With a searing curse, he leapt into the saddle, and the stallion reared, neighing beneath him. He glared up the slopes, hesitated, and then turned down the trail in the direction he had been going when halted by Kemp's trickery. But now, he did not ride at a measured gait. He shook loose the reins, and the stallion went like a thunderbolt, as if frantic to lose hysteria in violent physical exertion. Across the ledge and around the crag and down the narrow trail, threading the great steep they plunged at breakneck speed. The path followed a fold of rock, winding interminably down from tier to tier of striated escarpment, and once far below, Conan got a glimpse of the ruin that had fallen, a mighty pile of broken stone and boulders at the foot of a gigantic cliff. The valley floor was still far below him when he reached a long and lofty ridge that led out from the slope like a natural causeway. Out upon this he rode with an almost sheer drop on either hand. He could trace ahead of him the trail and made a great horseshoe back into the riverbed at his left hand. He cursed the necessity of traversing those miles, but it was the only way. To try to descend to the lower lap of the trail here would be to attempt the impossible. Only a bird could get to the riverbed with a whole neck. So he urged on the wearying stallion until a clink of hooves reached his ears. Welling up from below, pulling up short and reining to the lip of the cliff, he stared down into the dry river bed that wound along the foot of the ridge. Along that gorge rode a motley throng, bearded men on half-wild horses, five hundred strong bristling with weapons. And Conan shouted suddenly, leaning over the edge of the cliff, three hundred feet above them. At his shout, they reined back, and five hundred bearded faces were tilted up towards him. A deep, clamorous roar filled the canyon. Conan did not waste words. I was riding for gore, he roared. I had not hoped to meet you dogs on the trail. Follow me as fast as your nags can push. I'm going to Yimshaw and... Traitor. The howl was like a dash of ice water in his face. What? He glared down at them, jolted speechless. He saw wild eyes blazing up at him, faces contorted with fury, fists brandishing blades. Traitor, they roared back, wholeheartedly. Where are the seven chiefs held captive in Peshkauri? Why, in the governor's prison, I suppose, he answered. A bloodthirsty yell from a hundred throats answered him, with such a waving of weapons and a clamor that he could not understand what they were saying. He beat down the din with a bull-like roar and bellowed, What devil's play is this? Let one of you speak so I can understand what you mean. A gaunt old chief elected himself to this position, shook his tolwa at Conan as a preamble, and shouted accusingly, you would not let us go raiding Peshkauri to rescue our brothers. No, you fools, roared the exasperated Cimmerian. Even if you'd breached the wall, which is unlikely, they'd have hanged the prisoners before you could reach them. And you went alone to traffic with the governor, yelled the Afghuli, working himself into a frothing frenzy. Well, 
Where are the seven chiefs? howled the old chief, making his tulwa into a glimmering wheel of steel about his head. Where are they? Dead! What? Conan nearly fell off his horse in his surprise. Ah, dead, five hundred bloodthirsty voices assured him. The old chief brandished his arms and got the floor again. They were not hanged, he screeched. A wazali in another cell saw them die. The governor sent a wizard to slay them by craft. That must be a lie, said Conan. The governor would not dare. Last night I talked with him. The admission was unfortunate. A yell of hate and accusation split the skies. Aye, you went to him alone, to betray us. It is no lie. The Wazali escaped through the door as the wizard burst in his entry, and told the tale to our scouts whom he met in Zyobor. They had been sent forth to search for you, when you did not return. When they heard the Wazuli's tale, they returned with all haste to Gore, and we saddled our steeds and girt our swords. And what do you fools mean to do? demanded the Sumerian. To avenge our brothers, they howled. Death to the Shatrias! Slay him, brothers! He is a traitor! Arrows began to rattle around him. Conan rose in his stirrups, striving to make himself heard above the tumult, and then, with a roar of mingled rage, defiance and disgust, he wheeled and galloped back up the trail. Behind him and below him, the Afulis came pelting, mouthing their rage, too furious even to remember that the only way they could reach the height whereon he rode was to traverse the riverbed in the other direction, make the broad bend and follow the twisting trail up over the ridge. When they did remember this, and turned back, their repudiated chief had almost reached the point where the ridge joined the escarpment. At the cliff, he did not take the trail by which he had descended, but turned off on another a mere trace along a rock fault, where the stallion scrambled for footing. He had not ridden far when the stallion snorted and shied back from something lying in the trail. Conan stared down on the travesty of a man, a broken, shredded, bloody heap that gibbered and gnashed splintered teeth. Impelled by some obscure reason, Conan dismounted and stood looking down at the ghastly shape, knowing that he was witness of a thing miraculous and opposed to nature. The Raksha lifted his gory head, and his strange eyes, glazed with agony and approaching death, rested on Conan with recognition. Where are they? It was a racking croak, not even remotely resembling a human voice. Gone back to their damnable castle on Yimshar, grunted Conan. They took the Devi with them. I will go, muttered the man. I will follow them. They killed Gitara. I will kill them. The Acolytes, the Four of the Black Circle, the Master himself, kill, kill them all! He strove to drag his mutilated frame along the rock, but not even his indomitable will could animate that gory mass longer, where the splintered bones hung together only by torn tissue and ruptured fibre. Follow them, raved Kemsa, drooling a bloody slaver. Follow! I'm going to, growled Conan. I went to fetch my Afghulis. But they've turned on me. I'm going on to Yimsha alone. I'll have the Devi back if I have to tear down that damn mountain with my bare hands. I didn't think the governor would dare kill my headman when I had the Devi. But it seems he did. I'll have his head for that. She's no use to me now as a hostage, but... The curse of Yizel on them, gasped Hemsa. Go! I am dying. Wait, take my girdle. 
He tried to fumble with a mangled hand at his tatters, and Conan, understanding what he sought to convey, bent and drew from about his gory waist a girdle of curious aspect. Follow the golden vein through the abyss, muttered Kemsa. Wear the girdle. I had it from a Stygian priest. It will aid you, though it failed me at last. Break the crystal globe with the four golden pomegranates. Beware of the master's transmutations. I am going to Gitara. She's waiting for me in hell. Ah, yeah, yeah, Skelos Yar. And so he died. Conan stared down at the girdle. The hair of which it was woven was not horsehair. He was convinced that it was woven of the thick black tresses of a woman. Set in the thick mesh were tiny jewels, such as he had never seen before. The buckle was strangely made, in the form of a golden serpent head, flat, wedge-shaped and scaled with curious art. A strong shudder shook Conan as he handled it, and he turned as though to cast it over the precipice. Then he hesitated, and finally buckled it about his waist, under the baccarat girdle. Then he mounted and pushed on. The sun had sunk behind the crags. He climbed the trail in the vast shadow of the cliffs that was thrown out like a dark blue mantle over valleys and ridges far below. He was not far from the crest when, edging around the shoulder of a jutting crag, he heard the clink of shod hooves ahead of him. He did not turn back. Indeed, so narrow was the path that the stallion could not wield his great body upon it. He rounded the jut of the rock and came upon a portion of the path that broadened somewhat. A chorus of threatening yells broke on his ear, but his stallion pinned a terrified horse hard against the rock, and Conan caught the arm of the rider in an iron grip, checking the lifted sword in mid-air. Kareem Shah, muttered Conan, red glints smouldering luridly in his eyes. The Turanian did not struggle. They sat their horses almost breast to breast, Conan's fingers locking the other's sword arm. Behind Karim Shah filed a group of lean Iraqzai on gaunt horses. They glared like wolves, fingering bows and knives, but rendered uncertain because of the narrowness of the path and the perilous proximity of the abyss that yawned beneath them. Where is the Devi? demanded Karim Shah. What's it to you, you Harkinian spy? snarled Conan. I know you have her, answered Karim Shah. I was on my way northward with some tribesmen when we were ambushed by enemies in Shaliza Pass. Many of my men were slain, and the rest of us harried through the hills like jackals. When we had beaten off our pursuers, we turned westward toward Amir Jehun Pass, and this morning we came upon a Wazuli wandering through the hills. He was quite mad, but I learned much from his incoherent gibberings before he died. I learned that he was the sole survivor of a band which followed a chief of the Afkulis, and a captive Kshatriya woman into a gorge behind Kiram village. He babbled much of a man in a green turban whom the Afku rode down, but who, when attacked by the Wazulis who pursued, smote them with a nameless doom that wiped them out as a gust of wind-driven fire wipes out a cluster of locusts. How that one man escaped, I do not know, nor did he, but I knew from his wanderings that Conan of Gore had been in Karum with his royal captive, and as we made our way through the hills, we overtook a naked Gauze girl bearing a gourd of water, who told us a tale of having been stripped and ravished by a giant foreigner in the garb of an Afghuli chief, who, she said, gave her garments to a Vendian woman who accompanied him. She said you rode westward. 
Kareem Shah did not consider it necessary to explain that he had been on his way to keep his rendezvous with the expected troops from Secunderam when he found his way barred by hostile tribesmen. The road to Gurashah Valley through Shaliza Pass was longer than the road that wound through Amir Jehum Pass, but the latter traversed part of the Afghuli country, which Kareem Shah had been anxious to avoid until he came with an army. Barred from the Shaliza Road, however, he had turned to the Forbidden Route, until news that Conan had not yet reached Afghanistan with his captive had caused him to turn southward and push on recklessly in the hope of overtaking the Cimmerian in the hills. So you had better tell me where the Devi is, suggested Kerim Shah. We outnumber you. Let one of your dogs knock a shaft and I'll throw you over the cliff, Conan promised. It wouldn't do you any good to kill me, anyhow. Five hundred Afghulis are on my trail, and if they find you've cheated them, they'll flay you alive. Anyway, I haven't got the Devi. She's in the hands of the Black Seers of Yimsha. Tarim, swore Kareem Shah softly, shaken out of his poise for the first time. Kemsa? Kemsa's dead, grunted Conan. His masters sent him to hell on a landslide, and now get out of my way. I'd be glad to kill you if I had the time, but I'm on my way to Yimsha. I'll go with you said the Turanian abruptly. Conan laughed at him. Do you think I'd trust you, you Hykanian dog? I don't ask you to, returned Kareem Shah. We both want the Devi. You know my reason. King Yezdegerd desires to add her kingdom to his empire and herself in his seraglio. And I knew you in the days when you were a hetman of the Kozak steppes, so I know your ambition is wholesale plunder. You want to loot Vendia and to twist out a huge ransom for Yasmina. Well, let us for the time being, without any illusion about each other, unite our forces and try to rescue the Devi from the Seers. If we succeed and live, we can fight it out to see who keeps her. Conan narrowly scrutinized the other for a moment, and then nodded, releasing the Turanian's arm. Agreed. What about your men? Karim Shah turned to the silent Iraksai and spoke briefly. This chief and I are going to Yimsha to fight the wizards. Will you go with us? or stay here to be flayed by the Arthculis, who are following this man. They looked at him with eyes grimly fatalistic. They were doomed, and they knew it, had known it ever since the singing arrows of the ambushed de Gozai had driven them back from the pass of Shaliza. The men of the lower Zaibar had too many reeking blood feuds among the crag-dwellers. They were too small a band to fight their way back through the hills to the villages of the border without the guidance of the crafty Turanian. They counted themselves as dead already, so they made the reply that only dead men would make. We will go with thee and die on Yimsha. Then in Krom's name let us be gone, grunted Conan, fidgeting with impatience as he started into the blue gulfs of the deepening twilight. My walls were hours behind me, but we've lost a devilish lot of time. Karim Shah backed his steed from between the black stallion and the cliff, sheathed his sword and cautiously turned the horse. Presently the band was filing up the path as swiftly as they dared. They came out upon the crest, nearly a mile east of the spot where Kemsurd halted the Cimmerian and the Devi. The path they had traversed was a perilous one, even for hillmen, and for that reason Conan had avoided it that day when carrying Yasmina, though Karim Shah, following him, had taken it supposing the Cimmerian had done likewise. Even Conan sighed with relief when the horses scrambled up over the last rim. They moved like phantom riders through an enchanted realm of shadows. The soft creak of leather, the clink of steel marked their passing, 
Then again the dark mountain slopes lay naked and silent in the starlight. Chapter 8 Yasmina had time but for one scream, when she felt herself enveloped in that crimson whirl and torn from her protector with appalling force. She screamed once, and then she had no breath to scream. She was blinded, deafened, rendered mute and eventually senseless by the terrific rushing of the air about her. There was a dazed consciousness of dizzy height and numbing speed, a confused impression of natural sensations gone mad, and then vertigo and oblivion. A vestige of these sensations clung to her as she recovered consciousness, so she cried out and clutched wildly, as though to stay a headlong and involuntary flight. Her fingers closed on soft fabric, and a relieving sense of stability pervaded her. She took cognizance of her surroundings. She was lying on a dais covered with black velvet. This dais stood in a great dim room whose walls were hung with dusky tapestries across which crawled dragons, reproduced with repellent realism. Floating shadows merely hinted at the lofty ceiling, and gloom that lent itself to illusion lurked in the corners. There seemed to be neither windows nor doors in the walls, or else they were concealed by the nighted tapestries. Where the dim light came from, Yasmina could not determine. The great room was a realm of mysteries or shadows, and shadowy shapes in which she could not have sworn to observe movement, yet which invaded her mind with a dim and formless terror. But her gaze fixed itself on a tangible object. On another, smaller dais of jet, a few feet away, a man sat cross-legged, gazing contemplatively at her. His long black velvet robe, embroidered with gold thread, fell loosely about him, masking his figure. His hands were folded in his sleeves. There was a velvet cap upon his head. His face was calm, placid, not unhandsome, his eyes lambent and slightly oblique. He did not move a muscle as he sat regarding her, nor did his expression alter when he saw she was conscious. Yasmina felt fear crawl like a trickle of ice water down her supple spine. She lifted herself on her elbows and stared apprehensively at the stranger. Who are you? she demanded. Her voice sounded brittle and inadequate. I am the master of Yimshah. The tone was rich and resonant, like the mellow tones of a temple bell. Why did you bring me here? she demanded. Were you not seeking me? If you are one of the black seers, yes, she answered recklessly, believing that he could read her thoughts anyway. He laughed softly and chills crawled up and down her spine again. You would turn the wild children of the hills against the seers of Yimsha, he smiled. I have read it in your mind, princess, your weak human mind filled with petty dreams of hate and revenge. You slew my brother. A rising tide of anger was vying with her fear. Her hands were clenched, her lithe body rigid. Why did you persecute him? He never harmed you. The priests say the seers are above meddling in human affairs. Why did you destroy the king of Vendia? How can an ordinary human understand the motives of a seer? Returned the master calmly. My acolytes in the temples of Turan, who are the priests behind the priests of Tarim, urged me to bestir myself in behalf of Yezdegerd. For reasons of my own, I complied. How can I explain my mystic reasons to your puny intellect? You could not understand. I understand this. That my brother died. Tears of grief and rage shook in her voice. She rose upon her knees and stared at him with wide, blazing eyes, as supple and dangerous in that moment as a she-panther. As Yezdigerd desired, 
agreed the master calmly. For a while it was my whim to further his ambitions. Is Yezdigerd your vassal? Yasmina tried to keep the timbre of her voice unaltered. She had felt her knee pressing something hard and symmetrical under a fold of velvet. Subtly she shifted her position, moving her hand under the fold. Is the dog that licks up the offal in the temple yard the vassal of the guard? returned the master. He did not seem to notice the actions she sought to dissemble. Concealed by the velvet, her fingers closed on what she knew was the golden hilt of a dagger. She bent her head to hide the light of triumph in her eyes. I am weary of Yezdegerd, said the master. I have turned to other amusements. Ha! With a fierce cry, Yasmina sprang like a jungle cat, stabbing murderously. Then she stumbled and slid to the floor, where she cowered, staring up at the man on the dais. He had not moved. His cryptic smile was unchanged. Tremblingly, she lifted her hand and stared at it with dilated eyes. There was no dagger in her fingers. They grasped a stalk of golden lotus, the crushed blossoms drooping on the bruised stem. She dropped it, as if it had been a viper, and scrambled away from the proximity of her tormentor. She returned to her own dais, because that was at least more dignified for a queen than groveling on the floor at the feet of a sorcerer, and eyed him apprehensively, expecting reprisals. But the master made no move. All substance is one to him who holds the key of the cosmos, he said cryptically. To an adept, nothing is immutable. At will, steel blossoms bloom in unnamed gardens, or flower swords flash in the moonlight. You are a devil, she sobbed. Not I, he laughed. I was born on this planet, long ago. Once I was a common man, nor have I lost all human attributes in the numberless eons of my adeptship. A human steeped in the dark arts is greater than a devil. I am of human origin, but I rule demons. You have seen the lords of the Black Circle. It would blast your soul to hear from what far realm I summoned them, and from what doom I guard them with ensorcelled crystal and golden serpents. But only I can rule them. My foolish Kemp's are thought to make himself great, poor fool bursting material doors and hurtling himself and his mistress through the air from hill to hill. Yet if he had not been destroyed, his power might have grown to rival mine. He laughed again. And you, poor silly thing, plotting to send a hairy hill chief to storm Yimsha. It was such a jest that I myself could have designed, had it occurred to me that you should fall in his hands. And I read in your childish mind an intention to seduce by your feminine wiles to attempt your purpose anyway. But for all your stupidity, you are a woman fair to look upon. It is my whim to keep you for my slave. The daughter of a thousand proud emperors gasped with shame and fury at the word. You dare not. His mocking laughter cut her like a whip across her naked shoulders. The king dares not trample a worm in the road. Little fool, do you not realize that your royal pride is no more than a straw blown on the wind? I, who have known the kisses of the queens of hell, you have seen how I deal with a rebel. Cowed and awed, the girl crouched on the velvet-covered dais. The light grew dimmer and more phantom-like. The features of the master became shadowy. His voice took on a newer tone of command. I will never yield to you. Her voice trembled with fear, but it carried a ring of resolution. You will yield, he answered with horrible conviction. Fear and pain shall teach you. 
I will lash you with horror and agony to the last quivering ounce of your endurance until you become as melted wax to be bent and moulded in my hands as I desire. You shall know such discipline as no mortal woman ever knew until my slightest command is to you as the unalterable will of the gods. At first, to humble your pride, you shall travel back through the lost ages and view all the shapes that have been you. Aye, your Ikosa. At these words, the shadowy room swam before Yasmina's affrighted gaze. The roots of her hair prickled her scalp, and her tongue clove to her palate. Somewhere, a gong sounded a deep, ominous note. The dragons on the tapestries glowed like blue fire, and then faded out. The master on his dais was but a shapeless shadow. The dim light gave way to soft, thick darkness, almost tangible that pulsed with strange radiations. She could no longer see the master. She could see nothing. She had a strange sensation that the walls and ceiling had withdrawn immensely from her. Then somewhere in the darkness a glow began, like a firefly that rhythmically dimmed and quickened. It grew to a golden ball, and as it expanded, its light grew more intense, flaming whitely. It burst suddenly, showering the darkness with white sparks that did not illumine the shadows. But like impression left in the gloom, a faint luminance remained and revealed a slender, dusky shaft shooting up from the shadowy floor. Under the girl's dilated gaze, it spread, took shape. Stems and broad leaves appeared, and great black poisonous blossoms that towered above her as she cringed against the velvet. A subtle perfume pervaded the atmosphere. It was the dread figure of the black lotus that had grown up as she watched, as it grows in the haunted, forbidden jungles of Kitai. The broad leaves were murmurous with evil life. The blossoms bent toward her like sentient things, nodding serpent-like on pliant stems. Etched against soft, impenetrable darkness, it loomed over her, gigantic, blackly visible in some mad way. Her brain reeled with the drugging scent, and she sought to crawl from the dais. Then she clung to it as it seemed to be pitching at an impossible slant. She cried out with terror and clung to the velvet, but she felt her fingers ruthlessly torn away. There was a sensation as of all sanity and stability crumbling and vanishing. She was a quivering atom of sentiency driven through a black, roaring, icy void by a thundering wind that threatened to extinguish her feeble flicker of animate life like a candle blown out in a storm. Then there came a period of blind impulse and movement, when the atom that was she mingled and merged with myriad other atoms of spawning life in the yeasty morass of existence, molded by formative forces until she emerged again a conscious individual, whirling down an endless spiral of lives. In a mist of terror, she relived all her former existences, recognized and was again all the bodies that had carried her ego throughout the changing ages. She bruised her feet again over the long, weary road of life that stretched out behind her into the immemorial past. Back beyond the dimmest dawns of time, she crouched, shuddering in primordial jungles, hunted by slavering beasts of prey. Skin-clad, she waded thigh-deep in rice swamps, battling with squawking waterfowl for the precious grains. She labored with the oxen to drag the pointed stick through the stubborn soil, and she crouched endlessly over looms in peasant huts. She saw walled cities burst into flame and fled screaming before the slayers. 
She reeled naked and bleeding over burning sands, dragged at the slaver's stirrup, and she knew the grip of hot, fierce hands on her writhing flesh, the shame and agony of brutal lust. She screamed under the bite of the lash and moaned on the rack. Mad with terror, she fought against the hands that forced her head inexorably down on the bloody block. She knew the agonies of childbirth and the bitterness of love betrayed. She suffered all the woes and wrongs and brutalities that man has inflicted on woman throughout the eons, and she endured all the spite and malice of women for woman. And like the flick of a fiery whip throughout was the consciousness she retained of her Devi ship. She was all the woman she had ever been, yet in her knowing she was Yasmina. This consciousness was not lost in the throes of reincarnation. At one and the same time, she was a naked slave wench groveling under the whip and the proud Devi of Vendia, and she suffered not only as the slave girl suffered, but as Yasmina, to whose pride the whip was like a white-hot brand. Life merged into life in flying chaos, each with its burden of woe and shame and agony, until she dimly heard her own voice screaming unbearably, like one long-drawn cry of suffering echoing down the ages. Then she awakened on the velvet-covered dais in the mystic room. In a ghostly grey light, she saw again the dais and the cryptic-robed figure seated upon it. The hooded head was bent, the high shoulders faintly etched against the uncertain dimness. She could make out no details clearly, but the hood where the velvet cap had been stirred a formless uneasiness in her. As she stared, there stole over her a nameless fear that froze her tongue to her palate, a feeling that it was not the master who sat so silently on that black dais. Then the figure moved and rose upright, towering above her. It stooped over her, and the long arms in their wide black sleeves bent about her. She fought against them in speechless fright, surprised by their lean hardness. A hooded head bent down toward her averted face, and she screamed and screamed again in poignant fear and loathing. Bony arms gripped her lithe body, and from that hood looked forth a countenance of death and decay, features like rotting parchment on a mouldering skull. She screamed again, and then, as those champing, grinning jaws bent toward her lips, she lost consciousness. Chapter 9 The sun had risen over the white Hemelian peaks. At the foot of a long slope, a group of horsemen halted and stared upward, high above them, a stone tower poised on the pitch of the mountainside. Beyond and above that gleamed the walls of a greater keep, near the line where the snow began that capped Yimshar's pinnacle. There was a touch of unreality about the whole, purple slopes pitching up to that fantastic castle, toy-like with distance, and above it the white glistening peak shouldering the cold blue. We'll leave the horses here, grunted Conan. That treacherous slope is safer for a man on foot. Besides, they're done. He swung down from the black stallion, which stood with wide-braced legs and drooping head. They had pushed hard throughout the night, gnawing at scraps from saddlebags, and pausing only to give the horses the rests they had to have. That first tower is held by the acolytes of the Black Seers, said Conan. Or so men say, watchdogs for their masters, lesser sorcerers, they won't sit sucking their thumbs as we climb this slope. Kareem Shah glanced up the mountain, then back the way they had come. They were already far up Yimshah's side, and a vast expanse of lesser peaks and crags spread out beneath them. Among these labyrinths, the Turanians sought in vain for a movement of color that would betray men. 
Evidently the pursuing Athgulis had lost the chief's trail in the night. Let us go then. They tied the weary horses in a clump of tamarisk, and without further comment turned up the slope. There was no cover. It was a naked incline, strewn with boulders not big enough to conceal a man. But they did conceal something else. The party had not gone fifty steps when a snarling shape burst from behind a rock. It was one of the gaunt savage dogs that infested the hill villages, and its eyes glared redly, its jaws dripped foam. Conan was leading, but it did not attack him. It dashed past him and leapt at Karim Shah. The Turanian leapt aside, and the great dog flung itself upon the Araxai behind him. The man yelled and threw up his arm, which was torn by the brute's fangs, as it bore him backward, and the next instant half a dozen tollwars were hacking at the beast. Yet not until it was literally dismembered did the hideous creature cease its efforts to seize and rend its attackers. Karim Shah bound up the wounded warrior's gashed arm, looked at him narrowly, and then turned away without a word. He rejoined Conan, and they renewed the climb in silence. Presently, Karim Shah said, Strange to find a village dog in this place. There's no awful here, grunted Conan. Both turned their heads to glance back at the wounded warrior toiling after them among his companions. Sweat glistened on his dark face, and his lips were drawn back from his teeth in a grimace of pain. Then both looked again at the stone tower squatting above them. A slumberous quiet lay over the uplands. The tower showed no sign of life, nor did the strange pyramidal structure beyond it, but the men who toiled upward went with the tenseness of men walking on the edge of a crater. Karim Shah had unslung the powerful Turanian bow that killed at five hundred paces, and the Iraqzai looked to their own lighter and less lethal bows. But they were not within bowshot of the tower when something shot down out of the sky without warning. It passed so close to Kunan that he felt the wind of rushing wings, but it was an Iraqzai who staggered and fell, blood jetting from a severed jugular. A hawk with wings like burnished steel shot up again, blood dripping from the scimitar beak to reel against the sky as Karim Shah's bowstring twanged. It dropped like a plummet, but no man saw where it struck the earth. Conan bent over the victim of the attack, but the man was already dead. No one spoke, useless to comment on the fact that never before had a hawk been known to swoop on a man. Red rage began to vie with fatalistic lethargy in the wild souls of the Araxai. Hairy fingers knocked arrows, and men glared vengefully at the tower, whose very silence mocked them. But the next attack came swiftly. They all saw it, a white puffball of smoke that tumbled over the tower rim and came drifting and rolling down the slope toward them. Others followed it. They seemed harmless, mere woody globes of cloudy foam but Conan stepped aside to avoid contact with the first. Behind him, one of the Araxai reached out and thrust his sword into the unstable mass. Instantly, a sharp report shook the mountainside. There was a burst of blinding flame, and then the puffball had vanished, and the two curious warrior remained only a heap of charred and blackened bones. The crisp hand still gripped the ivory sword hilt, but the blade was gone, melted and destroyed by that awful heat. Yet men standing almost within reach of the victim had not suffered except to be dazzled and half-blinded by the sudden flare. Steel touches it off, grunted Conan. Look out, here they come. The slope above them was almost covered by the billowing spheres. Karim Shah bent his bow and sent a shaft into the mass, and those touched by the arrow burst like bubbles in spurting flame. 
His men followed his example, and for the next few minutes it was as if a thunderstorm raged on the mountain slope, with bolts of lightning striking and bursting in showers of flame. When the barrage ceased, only a few arrows were left in the quivers of the archers. They pushed on grimly, over soil charred and blackened, where the naked rock had in places been turned to lava by the explosion of those diabolical bombs. Now they were almost within arrow flight of the silent tower, and they spread their line, nerves taut, ready for any horror that might descend upon them. On the tower appeared a single figure lifting a ten-foot bronze horn. Its strident bellow roared out across the echoing slopes like the blare of trumpets on Judgment Day, and it began to be fearfully answered. The ground trembled under the feet of the invaders, and rumblings and grindings welled up from the subterranean depths. The Araxi screamed, reeling like drunken men on the shuddering slope, and Conan, eyes glaring, charged recklessly up the incline, knife in hand, straight at the door that showed in the tower wall. Above him, the great horn roared and bellowed in brutish mockery, and then Karim Shah drew a shaft to his ear and loosed. Only a Turanian could have made that shot. The bellowing of the horn ceased suddenly, and a high, thin scream shrilled in its place. The green-robed figure on the tower staggered, clutching at the long shaft which quivered in its bosom, and then pitched across the parapet. The great horn tumbled upon the battlement and hung precariously, and another robed figure rushed to seize it, shrieking in horror. Again the Turanian bow twanged, and again it was answered by a death howl. The second acolyte in falling struck the horn with his elbow and knocked it clattering over the parapet to shatter on the rocks far below. At such headlong speed had Conan covered the ground that before the clattering echoes of that fall had died away, he was hacking at the door. Warned by his savage instinct, he gave back suddenly as a tide of molten lead splashed down from above. But the next instant he was back again, attacking the panels with redoubled fury. He was galvanized by the fact that his enemies had resorted to earthly weapons. The sorcery of the acolytes was limited. Their necromantic resources might well be exhausted. Kareem Shah was hurrying up the slope, his hillmen behind him in a straggling crescent. They loosed as they ran, their arrows splintering against the walls or arching over the parapet. The heavy teak portal gave way beneath the Sumerian's assault, and he peered inside warily, expecting anything. He was looking into a circular chamber from which a stair wound upward. On the opposite side of the chamber, a door gaped open, revealing the outer slope and the backs of half a dozen green-robed figures in full retreat. Conan yelled, took a step into the tower, and then native caution jerked him back, just as a great block of stone fell crashing to the floor where his foot had been an instant before. Shouting to his followers, he raced around the tower. The acolytes had evacuated their first line of defense. As Conan rounded the tower, he saw their green robes twinkling up the mountain ahead of him. He gave chase, panting with earnest blood lust, and behind him, Karim Shah and the Iraqsai came pelting, the latter yelling like wolves at the flight of their enemies, their fatalism momentarily submerged by temporary triumph. The tower stood on the lower edge of a narrow plateau whose upward slant was barely perceptible. A few hundred yards away, this plateau ended abruptly in a chasm which had been invisible farther down the mountain. Into this chasm, the acolytes apparently leaped without checking their speed. Their pursuers saw the green robes flutter and disappear over the edge. 
A few moments later, they themselves were standing on the brink of the mighty moat that cut them off from the castle of the Black Seers. It was a sheer walled ravine that extended in either direction, as far as they could see, apparently girdling the mountain, some four hundred yards in width and five hundred feet deep, and in it, from rim to rim, a strange translucent mist sparkled and shimmered. Looking down, Conan grunted, far below him, moving across the glimmering floor which shone like burnished silver, he saw the forms of the green-robed acolytes. Their outline was wavering and indistinct, like figures seen under deep water. They walked in single file, moving toward the opposite wall. Karim Shah knocked an arrow and sent it singing downward, but when it struck the mist that filled the chasm, it seemed to lose momentum and direction, wandering widely from its course. If they went down, so can we, grunted Conan, while Kerim Shah stared after his shaft in amazement. I saw them last at this spot. Squinting down, he saw something shining like a golden thread across the canyon floor far below. The acolytes seemed to be following this thread, and there suddenly came to him Kemse's cryptic words. Follow the golden vein. On the brink, under his very hand as he crouched, he found it, a thin vein of sparkling gold running from an outcropping of ore to the edge and down across the silvery floor. And he found something else, which had before been invisible to him because of the peculiar refraction of the light. The gold vein followed a narrow ramp which slanted down into the ravine, fitted with niches for hand and foothold. Here's where they went down, he grunted to Karim Shah. Bear no adepts to waft themselves through the air. We'll follow them. It was at that instant that the man who had been bitten by the mad dog cried out horribly and leapt at Karim Shah, foaming and gnashing his teeth. The Turanian, quick as a cat on his feet, sprang aside and the madman pitched headfirst over the brink. The others rushed to the edge and glared after him in amazement. The maniac did not fall plummet-like. He floated slowly down through the rosy haze like a man sinking in deep water. His limbs moved like a man trying to swim, and his features were purple and convulsed beyond the contortions of his madness. Far down at last on the shining floor, his body settled and lay still. There's death in that chasm, muttered Karim Shah, drawing back from the rosy mist that shimmered almost at his feet. What now, Conan? On, answered the Sumerian grimly. Those acolytes are human. If the mist doesn't kill them, it won't kill me. He hitched his belt, and his hands touched the girdle Kemsa had given him. He scowled, then smiled bleakly. He had forgotten that girdle, yet thrice had death passed him by to strike another victim. The acolytes had reached the farther wall and were moving up it like great green flies. Letting himself upon the ramp, he descended warily. The rosy cloud lapped about his ankles, ascending as he lowered himself. It reached his knees, his thighs, his waist, his armpits. He felt as one feels a thick, heavy fog on a damp night. With it lapping about his chin, he hesitated and then ducked under. Instantly his breath ceased. All air was shut off from him, and he felt his ribs caving in on his vitals. With a frantic effort, he heaved himself up, fighting for life. His head rose above the surface, and he drank air in great gulps. Karim Shah leaned down toward him, spoke to him, but Conan neither heard nor heeded. Stubbornly, his mind fixed on what the dying Kemsa had told him, the Cimmerian groped for the gold vein and found that he had moved off it in his descent. Several series of handholds were niched in the ramp. 
Placing himself directly over the thread, he began climbing down once more. The rosy mist rose about him, engulfed him. Now his head was under, but he was still drinking pure air. Above him he saw his companions staring down at him, their features blurred by the haze that shimmered over his head. He gestured for them to follow and went down swiftly without waiting to see whether they complied or not. Karim Shah sheathed his sword without comment and followed, and the Araxai, more fearful of being left alone than of the terrors that might lurk below, scrambled after him. Each man clung to the golden thread as they saw the Sumerian do. Down the slanting ramp, they went to the ravine floor and moved out across the shining level, treading the gold vein like rope walkers. It was as if they walked along an invisible tunnel through which air circulated freely. They felt death pressing in on them above and on either hand, but it did not touch them. The vein crawled up a similar ramp on the other wall, up which the acolytes had disappeared, and up it they went with taut nerves, not knowing what might be waiting for them among the jutting spurs of rock that fanged the lip of the precipice. It was the green-robed acolytes who awaited them, with knives in their hands. Perhaps they had reached the limits to which they could retreat. Perhaps the Stygian girdle about Conan's waist could have told why their necromantic spells had proven so weak and so quickly exhausted. Perhaps it was knowledge of death decreed for failure that sent them leaping from among the rocks, eyes glaring and knives glittering, resorting in their desperation to material weapons. There, among the rocky fangs on the precipice lip, was no war of wizard craft. It was a whirl of blades, where real steel bit and real blood spurted, where sinewy arms dealt forthright blows, the severed quivering flesh, and men went down to be trodden underfoot as the fight raged over them. One of the Araxi bled to death among the rocks, but the acolytes were down, slashed and hacked asunder or hurled over the edge to float sluggishly down to the silver floor that shone so far below. Then the conquerors shook blood and sweat from their eyes and looked at one another. Conan and Karim Shah still stood upright and four of the Iraqsai. They stood among the rocky teeth that serrated the precipice brink and from that spot a path wound up a gentle slope to a broad stair consisting of half a dozen steps, a hundred feet across, cut out of a green jade-like substance. They led up to a broad stage or roofless gallery of the same polished stone and above it rose, tier upon tier, the castle of the Black Seers. It seemed to have been carved out of the sheer stone of the mountain. The architecture was faultless, but unadorned. The many casements were barred and masked with curtains within. There was no sign of life, friendly or hostile. They went up the path in silence, and warily as men treading the lair of a serpent. The Araxi were dumb, like men marching to a certain doom. Even Karim Shah was silent. Only Conan seemed unaware what a monstrous dislocating and uprooting of accepted thought and action their invasion constituted, what an unprecedented violation of tradition. He was not of the East, and he came of a breed who fought devils and wizards as promptly and matter-of-factly as they battled human foes. He strode up the shining stairs and across the wide green gallery, straight toward the great golden-bound teak door that opened upon it. He cast but a single glance upward at the higher tiers of the great pyramidal structure towering above him. He reached a hand for the bronze prong that jutted like a handle from the door, then checked himself, grinning hardly. The handle was made in the shape of a serpent, head lifted on arched neck, and Conan had a suspicion that that metal head would come to grisly life under his hand.
He struck it from the door with one blow, and its bronze clink on the glassy floor did not lessen his caution. He flipped it aside with his knife point, and again turned to the door. Utter silence reigned over the towers. Far below them, the mountain slopes fell away into a purple haze of distance. The sun glittered on snow-clad peaks on either hand. High above, a vulture hung like a black dot in the cold blue of the sky. But for it, the men before the gold-bound door were the only evidence of life. Tiny figures on a green jade gallery poised on the dizzy height, with that fantastic pile of stone towering above them. A sharp wind off the snow slashed them, whipping their tatters about. Conan's long knife, splintering through the teak panels, roused the startled echoes. Again and again he struck, hewing through polished wood and metal bands alike. Through the sundered ruins he glared into the interior, alert and suspicious as a wolf. He saw a broad chamber, the polished stone walls untapestried, the mosaic floor uncarpeted. Square, polished ebon stools and a stone dais formed the only furnishings. The room was empty of human life. Another door showed in the opposite wall. Leave a man on guard outside, grunted Conan. I'm going in. Karim Shah designated a warrior for that duty, and the man fell back toward the middle of the gallery, bow in hand. Conan strode into the castle, followed by the Turanian and the three remaining Iraqzai. The one outside spat, grumbled in his beard, and started suddenly as a low, mocking laugh reached his ears. He lifted his head and saw, on the tier above him, a tall, black-robed figure, naked head nodding slightly as he stared down. His whole attitude suggested mockery and malignity. Quick as a flash, the Araxi bent his bow and loosed, and the arrow streaked upward to strike full in the black-robed breast. The mocking smile did not alter. The seer plucked out the missile and threw it back at the bowman, not as a weapon is hurled, but with a contemptuous gesture. The Araxi dodged, instinctively throwing up his arm. His fingers closed on the revolving shaft. Then he shrieked. In his hand, the wooden shaft suddenly writhed. Its rigid outline became pliant, melting in his grasp. He tried to throw it from him, but it was too late. He held a living serpent in his naked hand, and already it had coiled about his wrist and its wicked wedge-shaped head darted at his muscular arm. He screamed again and his eyes became distended, his features purple. He went to his knees, shaken by an awful convulsion, and then lay still. The men inside had wheeled at his first cry. Conan took a swift stride toward the open doorway and then halted short, baffled. To the men behind him it seemed that he strained against empty air. But though he could see nothing, there was a slick, smooth, hard surface under his hands, and he knew that a sheet of crystal had been let down the doorway. Through it, he saw the Araxi lying motionless on the glassy gallery, an ordinary arrow sticking in his arm. Conan lifted his knife and smote, and the watchers were dumbfounded to see his blow checked, apparently in mid-air, with the loud clang of steel that meets an unyielding substance. He wasted no more effort. He knew that not even the legendary Tulwa of Amir Khurram could shatter that invisible curtain. In a few words, he explained the matter to Karim Shah, and the Turanian shrugged his shoulders. Well, if our exit is barred, we must find another. In the meanwhile, our way lies forward, does it not? With a grunt, the Cimmerian turned and strode across the chamber to the opposite door, with a feeling of treading on the threshold of doom. As he lifted his knife to shatter the door, it swung silently open, as if of its own accord. 
He strode into the great hall, flanked with tall, glassy columns. A hundred feet from the door began the broad, jade-green steps of a stair that tapered toward the top, like the side of a pyramid. What lay beyond that stair he could not tell, but between him and its shimmering foot stood a curious altar of gleaming black jade. Four great golden serpents twined their tails about this altar and reared their wedge-shaped heads in the air, facing the four quarters of the compass like the enchanted guardians of a fabled treasure. But on the altar between the arching necks stood only a crystal globe filled with cloudy smoke-like substance in which floated four golden pomegranates. The sight stirred some dim recollection in his mind. Then Conan heeded the altar no longer, for on the lower steps of the stair stood four black-robed figures. He had not seen them come. They were simply there, tall, gaunt, their vulture heads nodding in unison, their feet and hands hidden by their flowing garments. One lifted his arm, and the sleeve fell away, revealing his hand. And it was not a hand at all. Conan halted in mid-stride, compelled against his will. He had encountered a force differing subtly from Kemp's mesmerism, and he could not advance, though he felt it in his power to retreat if he wished. His companions had likewise halted, and they seemed even more helpless than he, unable to move in either direction. The seer whose arm was lifted beckoned to one of the Iraxi, and the man moved toward him like one in a trance, eyes staring and fixed, blade hanging in limp fingers. As he pushed past Conan, the Cimmerian threw an arm across his breast to arrest him. Conan was so much stronger than the Araxi that in ordinary circumstances he could have broken his spine between his hands. But now the muscular arm was brushed aside like straw, and the Araxi moved toward the stair, treading jerkily and mechanically. He reached the steps and knelt stiffly, proffering his blade and bending his head. The seer took the sword. It flashed as he swung it up and down. The Araxi's head tumbled from his shoulders and thudded heavily on the black marble floor. An arch of blood jetted from the severed arteries, and the body slumped over and lay with arms spread wide. Again, a malformed hand lifted and beckoned, and another Araxi stumbled stiffly to his doom. The ghastly drama was reenacted, and another headless form lay beside the first. As the third tribesman clumped his way past Conan to his death, the Cimmerian, his veins bulging in his temples with his efforts to break past the unseen barrier that held him, was suddenly aware of allied forces, unseen but waking into life about him. This realization came without warning, but so powerfully that he could not doubt his instinct. His left hand slid involuntarily under his baccariot belt and closed on the Stygian girdle. And as he gripped it, he felt new strength flood his numbed limbs. The will to live was a pulsing white-hot fire, matched by the intensity of his burning rage. The third Iraxi was a decapitated corpse, and the hideous finger was lifting again when Conan felt the bursting of the invisible barrier. A fierce, involuntary cry burst from his lips as he leapt with the explosive suddenness of pent-up ferocity. His left hand gripped the sorcerer's girdle as a drowning man grips a floating log, and the long knife was a sheen of light in his right. The men on the steps did not move. They watched calmly, cynically. If they felt surprised, they did not show it. Conan did not allow himself to think what might chance when he came within knife reach of them. His blood was pounding in his temples. A mist of crimson swam before his sight. He was afire with the urge to kill, to drive his knife deep into flesh and bone, and twist the blade in blood and entrails. 
Another dozen strides would carry him to the steps where the sneering demon stood. He drew his breath deep, his fury rising redly as his charge gathered momentum. He was hurtling past the altar with its golden serpents, when like a levin flash, there shot across his mind again as vividly as if spoken in his external ear, the cryptic words of Kemsa, Break the crystal ball. His reaction was almost without his own volition. Execution followed impulse so spontaneously that the greatest sorcerer of the age would not have had time to read his mind and prevent his action. Wheeling like a cat from his headlong charge, he brought his knife crashing down upon the crystal. Instantly, the air vibrated with a peal of terror, whether from the stairs, the altar, or the crystal itself, he could not tell. Hisses filled his ears as the golden serpents, suddenly vibrant with hideous life, writhed and smote at him. But he was fired to the speed of a maddened tiger. A whirl of steel sheared through the hideous trunks that waved toward him, and he smote the crystal sphere again and yet again. And the globe burst with a noise like a thunderclap, raining fiery shards on the black marble and the gold pomegranates, as if released from captivity, shot upward toward the lofty roof and were gone. A mad screaming, bestial and ghastly, was echoing through the great hall. On the steps writhed four black-robed figures, twisting in convulsions, froth dripping from their livid mouths. Then with one frenzied crescendo of inhuman ululation, they stiffened and lay still, and Conan knew that they were dead. He stared down at the altar and the crystal shards. Four headless golden serpents still coiled about the altar, but no alien life now animated the dully gleaming metal. Kareem Shah was rising slowly from his knees, whither he had been dashed by some unseen force. He shook his head to clear the ringing from his ears. Did you hear that crash when you struck? It was as if a thousand crystal panels shattered all over the castle as that globe burst. Were the souls of the wizards imprisoned in those golden balls? Yeah. Conan wheeled as Kareem Shah drew his sword and pointed. Another figure stood at the head of the stair. His robe, too, was black, but of richly embroidered velvet, and there was a velvet cap on his head. His face was calm and not unhandsome. Who the devil are you? demanded Conan, staring up at him, knife in hand. I am the master of Yimshur. His voice was like the chime of a temple bell, but a note of cruel mirth ran through it. Where is Yasmina? demanded Kareem Shah. The master laughed down at him. What is that to you, dead man? Have you so quickly forgotten my strength, once lent to you, that you come armed against me, you poor fool? I think I will take your heart, Kareem Shah. He held out his hand as if to receive something, and the Turanian cried out sharply like a man in mortal agony. He reeled drunkenly, and then with a splintering of bones, a rending of flesh and muscle and a snapping of mail links, his breast burst outward with a shower of blood, and through the ghastly aperture something red and dripping shot through the air into the master's outstretched hand, as a bit of steel leaped to the magnet. The Turanian slumped to the floor and lay motionless, and the master laughed and hurled the object to fall before Conan's feet, a still quivering human heart. With a roar and a curse, Conan charged the stair. From Kemsa's girdle he felt strength and deathless hate flow into him to combat the terrible emanation of power that met him on the steps. The air filled with a shimmering, steely haze through which he plunged like a swimmer, head lowered, left arm bent about his face, knife gripped low in his right hand. 
His half-blinded eyes glaring over the crook of his elbow made out the hated shape of the seer before and above him, the outline wavering as a reflection wavers in disturbed water. He was racked and torn by forces beyond his comprehension, but he felt a driving power outside and beyond his own, lifting him inexorably upward and onward, despite the wizard's strength and his own agony. Now he had reached the head of the stairs, and the master's face floated in the steely haze before him, and a strange fear shadowed the inscrutable eyes. Conan waded through the mist as through a surf, and his knife lunged upward like a live thing. The keen point ripped the master's robe as he sprang back with a low cry. Then, before Conan's gaze, the wizard vanished, simply disappeared like a burst bubble, and something long and undulating darted up one of the smaller stairs that led up to left and right from the landing. Conan charged after it, up the left-hand stair, uncertain as to just what he had seen whip up those steps, but in a berserk mood that drowned the nausea and horror whispering at the back of his consciousness. He plunged out into a broad corridor whose uncarpeted floor and untapestried walls were of polished jade, and something long and swift whisked down the corridor ahead of him and into a curtained door. From within the chamber rose a scream of urgent terror. The sound lent wings to Conan's flying feet, and he hurtled through the curtains and headlong into the chamber within. A frightful scene met his glare. Yasmina cowered on the farther edge of a velvet-covered dais, screaming her loathing and horror, an arm lifted as if to ward off attack, while before her swayed the hideous head of a giant serpent, shining neck arching up from dark, gleaming coils. With a choked cry, Conan threw his knife. Instantly the monster whirled and was upon him like the rush of wind through tall grass. The long knife quivered in its neck, point and a foot of blade showing on one side, and the hilt and a hand's breadth of steel on the other, but it only seemed to madden the giant reptile. The great head towered above the man who faced it, and then darted down, the venom dripping jaws gaping wide, but Conan had plucked a dagger from his girdle, and he stabbed upward as the head dipped down. The point tore through the lower jaw and transfixed the upper, pinning them together. The next instant, the great trunk had looped itself about the Cimmerian as the snake, unable to use its fangs, employed its remaining form of attack. Conan's left arm was pinioned among the bone-crushing folds, but his right was free. Bracing his feet to keep upright, he stretched forth his hand, gripped the hilt of the long knife, jutting from the serpent's neck, and tore it free in a shower of blood. As if divining his purpose with more than bestial intelligence, the snake writhed and knotted, seeking to cast its loops about his right arm. But with the speed of light, the long knife rose and fell, shearing halfway through the reptile's giant trunk. Before he could strike again, the great pliant loops fell from him, and the monster dragged itself across the floor, gushing blood from its ghastly wounds. Conan sprang after it, knife lifted, but his vicious swipe cut empty air as the serpent writhed away from him and struck its blunt nose against a panelled screen of sandalwood. One of the panels gave inward, and the long, bleeding barrel whipped through it and was gone. Conan instantly attacked the screen. A few blows rent it apart, and he glared into the dim alcove beyond. No horrific shape coiled there. There was blood on the marble floor, and bloody tracks led to a cryptic arched door. Those tracks were of a man's bare feet. Conan, 
He wheeled back into the chamber, just in time to catch the devy of Vendia in his arms, as she rushed across the room and threw herself upon him, catching him about the neck with a frantic clasp, half hysterical with terror and gratitude and relief. His wild blood had been stirred to its uttermost by all that had passed. He caught her to him in a grasp that would have made her wince at another time and crushed her lips with his. She made no resistance. The Devi was drowned in the elemental woman. She closed her eyes and drank in his fierce, hot, lawless kisses with all the abandon of passionate thirst. She was panting with his violence when he ceased for breath and glared down at her lying limp in his mighty arms. I knew you'd come for me, she murmured. You would not leave me in this den of devils. At her words, recollection of their environment came to him suddenly. He lifted his head and listened intently. Silence reigned over the castle of Yimshah, but it was a silence impregnated with menace. Peril crouched in every corner, leered invisibly from every hanging. We'd better go while we can, he muttered. Those cuts were enough to kill any common beast, or man. But a wizard has a dozen lives, wound one, and he writhes away like a crippled snake to soak up fresh venom from some source of sorcery. He picked up the girl and carrying her in his arms like a child, he strode out into the gleaming jade corridor and down the stairs, nerves totally alert for any sign or sound. I met the master, she whispered, clinging to him and shuddering. He worked his spells on me to break my will. The most awful thing was a mouldering corpse which seized me in its arms. I fainted then and lay as one dead. I do not know how long. Shortly after I regained consciousness, I heard sounds of strife below and cries, and then that snake came slithering through the curtains. Ah, she shook at the memory of that horror. I knew somehow that it was not an illusion, but a real serpent that sought my life. It was not a shadow, at least answered Conan cryptically. He knew he was beaten and chose to slay you rather than let you be rescued. What do you mean, he? she asked uneasily and then shrank against him, crying out and forgetting her question. She had seen the corpses at the foot of the stairs. Those of the seers were not good to look at. As they lay twisted and contorted, their hands and feet were exposed to view, and at the sight, Yasmina went livid and hid her face against Conan's powerful shoulder. Chapter 10 Conan passed through the hall quickly enough, traversed the outer chamber, and approached the door that led upon the gallery. Then he saw the floor sprinkled with tiny glittering shards. The crystal sheet that had covered the doorway had been shivered to bits, and he remembered the crash that had accompanied the shattering of the crystal globe. He believed that every piece of crystal in the castle had broken at that instant, and some dim instinct or memory of esoteric lore vaguely suggested the truth of the monstrous connection between the lords of the Black Circle and the Golden Pomegranates. He felt the short hair bristle chilly at the back of his neck and put the matter hastily out of his mind. He breathed a deep sigh of relief as he stepped out upon the green jade gallery. There was still the gorge to cross, but at least he could see the white peaks glistening in the sun and the long slopes falling away into the distant blue hazes. The Araxi lay where he had fallen, an ugly blotch on the glassy smoothness. As Conan strode down the winding path, he was surprised to note the position of the sun. It had not yet passed its zenith, and yet it seemed to him that hours had passed since he plunged into the castle of the Black Seers. He felt an urge to hasten, 
not a mere blind panic, but an instinct of peril growing behind his back. He said nothing to Yasmina, and she seemed content to nestle her dark head against his arching breast and find security in the clasp of his iron arms. He paused an instant on the brink of the chasm, frowning down. The haze which danced in the gorge was no longer rose-hued and sparkling. It was smoky, dim, ghostly, like the life-tide that flickered thinly in a wounded man. The thought came vaguely to Conan that the spells of magicians were more closely bound to their personal beings than were the actions of common men to the actors. But far below, the floor shone like tarnished silver, and the gold thread sparkled undimmed. Conan shifted Yasmina across his shoulder, where she lay dorsally, and began the descent. Hurriedly he descended the ramp, and hurriedly he fled across the echoing floor. He had a conviction that they were racing with time, that their chances of survival depended upon crossing that gorge of horrors before the wounded master of the castle should regain enough power to lose some other doom upon them. When he toiled up the farther ramp and came out upon the crest, he breathed a gusty sigh of relief and stood Yasmina upon her feet. You walk from here, he told her. It's downhill all the way. She stole a glance at the gleaming pyramid across the chasm. It reared up against the snowy slope, like the citadel of silence and immemorial evil. Are you a magician, that you have conquered the black seers of Yimshar, Conan of Gore? she asked, as they went down the path with his heavy arm about her supple waist. It was a girdle Kemsa gave me before he died, Conan answered. Yes, I found him on the trail. It is a curious one, which I'll show you when I have time. Against some spells it was weak, but against others it was strong and a good knife is always a hearty incantation. But if the girdle aided you in conquering the master, she argued, why did it not aid Kemsa? He shook his head. Who knows, but Kemsa had been the master's slave. Perhaps that weakened its magic. He had no hold on me as he had on Kemsa. Yet I can't say that I conquered him. He retreated, but I have a feeling that we haven't seen the last of him. I want to put as many miles between us and his lair as we can. He was further relieved to find horses tethered among the tamarisks as he had left them. He loosed them swiftly and mounted the black stallion, swinging the girl up before him. The others followed, freshened by their rest. And what now? she asked. To Afghulistan? Not just now, he grinned hardly. Somebody, maybe the governor, killed my seven headmen. My idiotic followers think I had something to do with it, and unless I am able to convince them otherwise, they'll hunt me like a wounded jackal. Then what of me? If the headmen are dead, I am useless to you as a hostage. Will you slay me to avenge them? He looked down at her with eyes fiercely aglow, and laughed at the suggestion. Then let us ride to the border, she said. You'll be safe from the Afghulis there. Yes, on a Vandian gibbet. I am Queen of Vendia, she reminded him with a touch of her old imperiousness. You have saved my life. You shall be rewarded. She did not intend it as it sounded, but he growled in his throat, ill-pleased. Keep your bounty for your city-bred dogs, princess. If you're a queen of the plains, I'm a chief of the hills, and not one foot towards the border will I take you. But you would be safe, she began bewilderedly. And you'd be the Devi again, he broke in. No, girl, I prefer you as you are now, a woman of flesh and blood riding on my saddle bow. But you can't keep me, she cried. You can't. Watch and see, he advised grimly, but I will pay you a vast ransom. Devil take your ransom, he answered roughly, his arms hardening about her supple figure. 
The kingdom of Vendia could give me nothing I desire half so much as I desire you. I took you at the risk of my neck. If your courtiers want you back, give them come up the Zahibar and fight for you. But you have no followers now, she protested. You are hunted. How can you preserve your own life, much less mine? I still have friends in the hills, he answered. There is a chief of the Karaksai who will keep you safely while I bicker with the Athkulis. If they will have none of me by Chrome, I will ride northward with you to the steps of the Kozaki. I was a hetman among the free companions before I rode southward. I'll make you a queen on the Zaporoska River. But I cannot, she objected. You must not hold me. If the idea is so repulsive, he demanded, why did you yield your lips to me so willingly? Even a queen is human, she answered, coloring. But because I am a queen, I must consider my kingdom. Do not carry me away into some foreign country. Come back to Vendia with me. Would you make me your king? He asked sardonically. Well, there are customs, she stammered, and he interrupted her with a hard laugh. Yes, civilized customs that won't let you do as you wish. You'll marry some withered old king of the plains, and I can go my way with only the memory of a few kisses snatched from your lips. Ah, but I must return to my kingdom, she repeated helplessly. Why? he demanded angrily. To chafe your rump on gold thrones, and listen to the plaudits of smirking velvet-skirted fools. Where is the gain? Listen, I was born in the Sumerian hills where the people are all barbarians. I have been a mercenary soldier, a corsair, a cossack, and a hundred other things. What king has roamed the countries, fought the battles, loved the women, and won the plunder that I have? I came into Gulistan to raise a horde and plunder the kingdoms to the south, your own among them. Being chief of the Afkulis was only a start. If I can conciliate them, I'll have a dozen tribes following me within a year. But if I can't, I'll ride back to the steppes and loot the Turanian borders with the Kozaki. And you'll go with me, to the devil with your kingdom. They fended for themselves before you were born. She lay in his arms, looking up at him, and she felt a tug at her spirit, a lawless, reckless urge that matched his own, and was by it called into being. But a thousand generations of sovereignship rode heavy upon her. I can't, I can't, she repeated helplessly. You haven't any choice, he assured her. You? What the devil? They had left Yimshar some miles behind them and were riding along a high ridge that separated two deep valleys. They had just topped a steep crest where they could gaze down into the valley on their right hand. And there was a running fight in progress. A strong wind was blowing away from them, carrying the sound from their ears. But even so, the clashing of steel and thunder of hooves welled up from far below. They saw the glint of the sun on lance tip and spired helmet. Three thousand mailed horsemen were driving before them, a ragged band of turbaned riders who fled snarling and striking like fleeing wolves. Turanians, muttered Conan, squadrons from Secunderam. What the devil are they doing here? Who are the men they pursue? asked Yasmina. And why do they fall back so stubbornly? They cannot stand against such odds. Five hundred of my mad Afghulis, he growled, scowling down into the vale. They're in a trap, and they know it. The valley was indeed a cul-de-sac at that end. It narrowed to a high-walled gourd, opening out further into a round bowl, completely rimmed with lofty, unscalable walls. The turbaned riders were being forced into this gorge, because there was nowhere else for them to go, and they went reluctantly, in a shower of arrows and a whirl of swords. 
The helmeted riders harried them, but did not press in too rashly. They knew the desperate fury of the hill tribes, and they knew too that they had their prey in a trap from which there was no escape. They had recognized the hillmen as Afghulis, and they wished to hem them in and force a surrender. They needed hostages for the purpose they had in mind. Their emir was a man of decision and initiative. When he reached the Gurashar Valley and found neither guides nor emissary waiting for him, he pushed on, trusting to his own knowledge of the country. All the way from Secunderam there had been fighting, and tribesmen were licking their wounds in many a crag-perched village. He knew there was a good chance that neither he nor any of his helmeted spearmen would ever ride through the gates of Secunderam again, for the tribes would all be up behind him now. But he was determined to carry out his orders, which were to take Yasmina Devi from the Afghulis at all costs, and to bring her captive for Secunderam, or if confronted by impossibility, to strike off her head before he himself died. Of all this, of course, the watchers on the ridge were not aware, but Conan fidgeted with nervousness. Why the devil did they get themselves trapped? he demanded of the universe at large. I know what they're doing in these parts. They were hunting me, the dogs, poking into every valley, and found themselves penned in before they knew it. The poor fools. They're making a stand in the gorge, but they can't hold out for long. When the Turanians have pushed them back into the bowl, they'll slaughter them at their leisure. The din welling up from below increased in volume and intensity. In the strait of the narrow gut, the Afghulis, fighting desperately, were for the time holding their own against the mailed riders, who could not throw their whole weight against them. Conan scowled darkly, moved restlessly, fingering his hilt, and finally spoke bluntly. Devi, I must go down to them. I'll find a place for you to hide until I come back to you. You spoke of your kingdom. Well, I don't pretend to look on those hairy devils as my children, but after all, such as they are, they're my henchmen. A chief should never desert his followers, even if they desert him first. They think they were right in kicking me out. Hell, I won't be cast off. I'm still chief of the Afkulis, and I'll prove it. I can climb down on foot into the gorge. But what of me? she queried. You carried me away forcibly from my people. Now will you leave me to die in the hills alone while you go down and sacrifice yourself uselessly? His veins swelled with the conflict of his emotions. That's right, he muttered helplessly. Crom knows what I can do. She turned her head slightly, a curious expression dawning on her beautiful face. Then, Listen, she cried, listen! A distant fanfare of trumpets was borne faintly to their ears. They stared into the deep valley on the left and caught a glint of steel on the farther side. A long line of lances and polished helmets moved along the vale, gleaming in the sunlight. The riders of Vendia, she cried exultingly. There are thousands of them, muttered Conan. It has been long since a Kshatriya host has ridden this far into the hills. They are searching for me, she exclaimed. Give me your horse. I will ride to my warriors. The ridge is not so precipitous on the left and I can reach the valley floor. I will lead my horsemen into the valley at the upper end and fall upon the Turanians. We will crush them in the vise. Quick, Conan, will you sacrifice your men to your own desire? The burning hunger of the steppes and the wintry forests glared out of his eyes, but he shook his head and swung off the stallion, placing the reins in her hands. You win, he grunted. Ride like the devil. She wheeled away down the left-hand slope 
and he ran swiftly along the ridge until he reached the long, ragged cleft that was the defile in which the fight raged. Down the rugged wall, he scrambled like an ape, clinging to projections and crevices to fall at last, feet first, into the melee that raged in the mouth of the gorge. Blades were wickering and clanging about him, horses rearing and stamping, helmet plumes nodding among turbans that were stained crimson. As he hit, he yelled like a wolf, caught a gold-worked rein, and dodging the sweep of a scimitar, drove his lung knife upward through the rider's vitals. In another instant, he was in the saddle, yelling ferocious orders to the aft hollies. They stared at him stupidly for an instant. Then, as they saw the havoc his steel was wreaking among their enemies, they fell to their work again, accepting him without comment. In that inferno of licking blades and spurting blood, there was no time to ask or answer questions. The riders in their spired helmets and gold-worked hauberks swarmed about the gored mouth, thrusting and slashing, and the narrow defile was packed and jammed with horses and men. The warriors crushed breast to breast, stabbing with shortened blades, slashing murderously when there was an instant's room to swing a sword. When a man went down, he did not get up from beneath the stamping, swirling hooves. Weight and sheer strength counted heavily there, and the chief of the Afghulis did the work of ten. At such times accustomed habits sway men strongly, and the warriors, who were used to seeing Conan in their vanguard, were heartened mightily, despite their distrust of him. But superior numbers counted too. The pressure of the men behind forced the horsemen of Turan deeper and deeper and deeper into the gorge, in the teeth of the flickering towers. Foot by foot, the Arfkulis were shoved back, leaving the defile floor carpeted with dead, on which the riders trampled. As he hacked and smote like a man possessed, Conan had time for some chilling doubts. Would Yasmina keep her word? She had but to join her warriors, turn southward and leave him and his band to perish. But at last, after what seemed centuries of desperate battling, in the valley outside there rose another sound above the clash of steel and yells of slaughter. And then with a burst of trumpets that shook the walls and rushing thunder of hooves, five thousand riders of Vendia smote the hosts of Secunderam. That stroke split the Turanian squadrons asunder, shattered, tore and rent them, and scattered their fragments all over the valley. In an instant, the surge had ebbed back out of the gorge. There was a chaotic, confused swirl of fighting, horsemen wheeling and smiting singly, and in clusters, and then the emir went down with a shatria lance through his breast, and the riders in their spired helmets turned their horses down the valley, spurring like mad, and seeking to slash away through the swarms which had come upon them from the rear. As they scattered in flight, the conquerors scattered in pursuit, and all across the valley floor, and up on the slopes near the mouth and over the crests, streamed the fugitives and the pursuers. The Afghulis, those left to ride, rushed out of the gorge and joined in the harrying of their foes, accepting the unexpected alliance as unquestioningly as they had accepted the return of their repudiated chief. The sun was sinking toward the distant crags, when Conan, his garments hacked to tatters, and the male under them reeking and clotted with blood, his knife dripping and crusted to the hilt, strode over the corpses to where Yasmina Devi sat her horse among her nobles on the crest of the ridge, near a lofty precipice. You kept your word, Devi, he roared. By crumb, though, I had some bad seconds down in that gorge. Look out!
Down from the sky swooped a vulture of tremendous size with a thunder of wings that knocked men sprawling from their horses. The scimitar-like beak was slashing for the devi's soft neck, but Conan was quicker, a short run, a tigerish leap, the savage thrust of a dripping knife, and the vulture voiced a horribly human cry, pitched sideways and went tumbling down the cliffs to the rocks and river a thousand feet below. As it dropped, its black wings thrashing the air, it took on the semblance, not of a bird, but of a black-robed human body that fell, arms in wide black sleeves thrown abroad. Conan turned to Yasmina, his red knife still in his hand, his blue eyes smoldering, blood oozing from wounds on his thickly muscled arms and thighs. You are the Devi again, he said, grinning fiercely at the gold-clasped gossamer robe she had donned over her hill-girl attire, and awed not at all by the imposing array of chivalry about him. I have you to thank for the lives of some three hundred and fifty of my rogues, who are at least convinced that I didn't betray them. You have put my hands on the reins of conquest again. I still owe you my ransom, she said, her dark eyes glowing as they swept over him. Ten thousand pieces of gold I will pay you. He made a savage, impatient gesture, shook the blood from his knife and thrust it back in its scabbard, wiping his hands on his mail. I will collect your ransom in my own way, at my own time, he said. I will collect it in your palace at Ayodhya, and I will come with fifty thousand men to see that the scales are fair. She laughed, gathering her reins into her hands. And I will meet you on the shores of the Jumda with a hundred thousand. His eyes shone with fierce appreciation and admiration, and stepping back, he lifted his hand with a gesture that was like the assumption of kingship, indicating that her road was clear before her. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production.